0: You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of James. We're going to continue our study through the book of James, and so if you turn with me to chapter 5 of James, we're going to begin by reading verses 14 through 16 and dealing with the topic of healing. If you recall, I've said that basically I've broken these last nine verses into a uh, seven part series I call the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Christians and Highly Effective Churches. And I you chose the word habits simply because a habit is something that develops after you've really decided to follow a discipline. They say if you do the same thing over and over for 39 days, it will become a habit. And I find that many of us experience in our life that we do certain things for a while and then there's a breakdown. And then we find ourselves drifting back to the old habits. So I would encourage you to, as we're looking at these, to think about how can these things become part of my life? But if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? And it begins by, in verse 14, with James saying, Is anyone among you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we ask as we look to your word that your Holy Spirit would teach us, would inform our minds, but also, Lord, would transform our hearts that we might learn how to live a life that conforms to your will. We thank you that you're patient with us. We thank you that you're gracious and you're good to us, that even when we're not getting it right, you're still with us and helping us through the process. We ask, though, today, Lord, that we would see things and hear things that would help us to continue pursuing you in this journey of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, if there's any one thing that is most associated with the earthly ministry of Jesus, that three and a half years that he walked the earth, it would be the issue of healing. And I say that's the thing that stands out the most. It's certainly not the most important or even necessarily the most central thing that Jesus did. But but that's the thing that most people take note of. In fact, we find that over 70 times in the gospels that the writers tell us things like we read in chapter four, where it says, people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those with seizures, uh, the paralyzed, the blind, the lame, those who had leprosy, the deaf, and it simply says he healed them. He just simply healed them. And how he healed them was as variegated as the needs. I mean, we don't find Jesus employing a formula because he didn't need a formula, the power of God was in him and it flowed through him. Sometimes he touched people, sometimes he spoke a word, in a few rare instances he did things like put, spit on the ground and put mud in their eye and there's a lot of interesting approaches that Jesus took based upon the circumstance and the situation and really the need of the individual. But the idea of healing was not only to fix their bodies but was to begin to draw them into a pursuit of him. You see, in a time when disease was common and cures were not, news that someone possessed the power to heal spread literally like wildfire. So that even though Jesus' first mission was in a sense to preach and to teach the gospel, the, the thing is that the healing ministry was the very thing that gave ultimate affirmation to his message. Like the blind man that he heals in chapter 9 of John's gospel, when he is confronted by those who are opposing Jesus, uh, he responds by saying to them, "Since, (coughs) since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so as a result, those who were his opponents were left with nothing more to say. But here's what's interesting is that equally important is that after Jesus' resurrection, we see that that same power that he exercised was promised to his apostles and his disciples and it begins to manifest it in their ministry. In fact, the book of Acts begins with the first church that's founded with the writer saying, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Later on in chapter 4, he says great power and great grace was upon them as they began to do the same things that Jesus did. In fact, later on in chapter 9, we find that Peter even raises Tabitha from the dead. And it says as a consequence of that miracle, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. So as a consequence of these miraculous healings, even the enemies of the early church We're forced to reluctantly admit, as they did in chapter 4 of Acts, a notable sign has been performed. We cannot deny it. We cannot deny the miracle. Now, they tried to assign the miracles to demons, but they couldn't deny the fact that it actually happened. Now, one of the questions that often comes up after a person begins reading the Gospels is, why don't we see those same kind of miracles today? And we find that people kind of break into one of three camps when it comes to the issue of healing. There are some people who say it never happens. There's some people who say it has to always happen. And then there's people like me that says sometimes it happens. And so I'm going to try to convince you that I got it right. And those other guys are wrong. But bottom line is... This group that's called, referred to as cessationists because they look at 1 Corinthians 13 where it says when the perfect comes, then it says that prophecies and words of knowledge and so forth will cease. And so their argument is that after the first century, the miraculous powers that we see in the early church stopped happening. And they say the reason is because the perfect has come, which they argue is the Bible, Now, I'm amazed by some very intelligent, gifted, well-trained theologians who argue this point because it's clearly not the context of 1 Corinthians 13. The perfect comes is referring to the second coming of Christ. Everybody pretty much recognizes that's true. And I want to say this advisedly. When we talk about the Bible, the Bible is not perfect. It's perfect in its revelation. But there's about 50 passages in the Bible that are debatable because we're not exactly sure how to translate them literally the point and that's one of the reasons why you'll find when you look at various translations you will see little notations things italicized footnotes and so forth to clarify and to explain the different views and the changes that were made now in terms of major doctrines it hasn't affected anything And we can be pretty sure that we are as close. In fact, if you take all of the debatable passages in the entire Bible, it wouldn't even fill one page of the Bible itself. But having said that, we have to understand that we're not called to be biblio idolaters. We're not called to worship the Bible as a book. We're, We're called to worship the God of whom it testifies. And that's a significant difference. Because sometimes the church gets off in these rabbit trails like arguing which translation is most inspired. There's a whole group that call a King James only. And their argument is simply this. If the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Now, often I like to ask these folks, uh, which King James version? Because there's been eight revisions since it was first printed. Which one is the accurate one? Because if you look at the 1611 version... You probably couldn't even read it because it's written in such a high level of Chaucer like or Shakespearean style English. It's really a vocabulary language that we don't use. So language changes and grows. And so that's really to me just a total fruitless rabbit trail to go down and argue about which version is the best version. Granted, there are some translations that aren't so good, but the point is. That you can take eight different versions of the Bible in English, put them side by side, and you have access to all the greatest research that exists on the planet today of the biblical languages, and you can come to as accurate a conclusion as some of the best scholars on the planet. But the point is that where I really want to get back to is that when people say things like this, that these miracles have therefore ceased, and they argue because we don't see those miracles in the world today. Let me tell you why I disagree with that argument. Three reasons. Number one, the church fathers, I mean, those who wrote about Christianity in the second, third, and fourth centuries and on to the sixth century, wrote about miraculous healings that were taking place in the church in their generations. In fact, one of them by the name of Irenaeus wrote in 185 AD, he said, the sick are healed by the laying on of hands. So when you look at those who are known as the church fathers, I know their names that may be unfamiliar to you, but it's important that people like Tertullian and Origen and Clement and Polycarp and Justin Martyr and and Ignatius, all of them wrote as if miracles were happening in the same way that they saw them in in the book of Acts and in the gospel accounts. So first of all, we don't find anything in the writing of the early fathers saying, well, after the first century and after the apostles died, miracles stopped happening. Secondly, nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that there would come a point where the miracle power that we see in the Gospels and the book of Acts would stop being present in the church. There's no biblical foundation for that. But maybe third and most importantly is that many of us in this room have seen the power of miraculous healing. We've experienced it. We may not experience it every time we pray for somebody, but we have seen people, I know I have many times, where I have prayed for people and, and, and God has healed them. And it's not because I got hot hands. You know, it's, it's, and even the whole idea of the itinerating miracle healer who goes around blowing on people or shaking things, I'm not even sure that has any biblical precedent because all of the healing that we see in Scripture happens within the context of the community of faith as we'll see in a moment. But the whole idea is that we often say, who, who receives the gift of healing? The one who is healed or the one who lays their hands on them. I think the person who is healed is the one who has been most gifted. But we have to be very thankful that God still heals people because we live in a world where healing is very needful. See, even with our modern advances of medical science, uh, there are many diseases and conditions that are untreatable that many of our care for people is just palliative. We we make it easier for them to endure or live through what they're going through, but we really can't fix what's damaged and wrong. And most medical professionals will admit that they're, in a sense, little more than a body mechanic who uh, can adjust and, and fix certain things, but in the end, it is God who heals. That the body has to respond to the treatment To heal itself if a person is truly going to be healed. So, the greater question, I think, as we look at this passage is: is James implying that God is obligated to always heal? As some claim he is today. I mean, this is where we end up with the two extremes. You have some people saying, don't pray for people to be healed because God doesn't heal. On the other extreme, you have people saying, God promises that he will always heal. And they often quote this passage that we're looking at here. So you have these extremes, the nevers and the always. Where are we supposed to fall in this? Well, one of the things I think we need to understand is that Paul admitted that there were times, despite his prayers, that God didn't heal. In fact, in his last letter as he's awaiting execution, he's speaking about those who had previously been with him, and he says, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. In other words, Trophimus couldn't go with him because he was too ill to go with him, and Paul had left. But even more to the point is that Paul himself admitted to having a lifelong struggle with his health in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in the 7th verse, he says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Now, most scholars believe that the thorn in the flesh was a physical infirmity because, as one commentator, Albert Barnes, noted, he says, among the Hebrews, it was customary to attribute severe and painful diseases to Satan. So, this satanic messenger was often a way of speaking about having a physical ailment or infirmity. So, we ask the question well, what was the thorn in Paul's flesh? And again, most commentators believe it was some form of what we call chronic ophthalmia, basically an inflammation of the eyes that was very common in the ancient world, and particularly in the places where Paul happened to be. And the reason we think that is because of two comments he made in his letters to the Galatians. In Galatians 4, he said to them, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And then he ends in chapter six by saying to them, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. In other words, Paul often used what we call a scribe or a menusis to translate or to copy down his words. In other words, he would dictate and someone would write it and at the end, Paul would write his, put his name, I, Paul, write these things to really assure them that he is the author of the letter. But it's interesting, he's saying, why would he say you would have plucked out your own eyes if there wasn't something going on in his own eyes? And then when he says what large letters, actually Galatians is one of the shorter letters, but he's talking about the size of the characters that he was forming because his eyesight, undoubtedly, was so poor. So that we think that God really allowed Paul to be afflicted, and it's interesting. He says, I prayed three times that God would take it from me. And God simply said... No, it's my intention that you would have this thorn in your flesh, this limitation, because it will constantly remind you that I am the one who is doing the work, not you. Now, most of us in this room hope and pray that we never have to go through any kind of physical infirmity. But I guarantee you this, at some point in time, you will. It's called aging, it's called aging. We were just joking before service, I was talking to a couple of the ushers, and we were talking about it, that point you come in your life where you just get out of bed without thinking. You know, to me, I roll out of bed, crawl across the floor, center a hot shower, and then drink four cups of coffee. And then suddenly, the, you know, it's enough joint liquid, that's what coffee is, is joint liquid, and everything begins to work. This morning as I was watching our, our sound tech, he comes bounding down the step, and he just kind of one steps off and leaps onto the 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 walkway here off the stage and walks up there, and I thought to myself, I remember when I could do that. But now when I jump off something, I don't bounce. It's bone on bone, man. It's bump. You know, I have to ease myself down with my walker. It's like... But the simple fact is you find with time that there are certain limitations, and one of the beauties of growing old is you begin to realize, I don't have the strength that I once had. I don't have the resilience that I once had. I don't have the energy but I have God. And the more you begin to become sensitive to the fact it is God who does the thing. Because I find even at my age, I began to find that I forget things. You know, one of the things I find at my age is I often forget things. (laughs) I often forget things. (laughs) Where was I? I wish that was a joke. But we need to understand or at least accept the fact that there are things that are going to happen to us and like Paul, God is going to allow those things in our life because somehow as the body becomes weakened, the potential for the spirit to become stronger is so great that we have to depend upon him because let's face it, we don't depend upon God if we don't have to. We love to be able to take things in our own strength and our own ability and make things happen. And then we can sit back in glory and carry the things we accomplish as trophies that demonstrate what value and significance we have as individuals. And when you can't do that, and you have to simply depend upon God, God, if you don't, nothing will. At that moment, suddenly, we have invited God to magnify himself and glorify himself in our midst. You see, Jesus chose to enter the world in the home of an impoverished family in a, in a no-place city amongst a nobody people. And he chose to walk amongst us as one of us. As, as the, the Isaiah the prophet said, there was no beauty in him that made us desire him. That he didn't walk into a room and go, hey, check out the stud. No, Jesus walked in a room and people really didn't notice it. It was when he opened his mouth and began to speak by the power of God or as the writer of Matthew says, he spoke with authority unlike the other religious leaders. It's when he did that that they were suddenly impacted and moved and began to listen and pay attention and as the power of God to heal flowed through him and to do miracles, they very quickly began to ascertain, this is not just an ordinary man, even though in every way... He was an ordinary man. My point is simply this. I think we can draw a simple conclusion that God says he heals. But also we have to understand it is not always his purpose to do so. And sometimes we struggle against that because we want to feel better. We want to be free from any kind of limitation. We want to be able to get up and go. And there are some who go around promising that if you send them so much money, they'll send you a kerchief or an oil or a thing and come to their meeting and all the rest of it. And you'll be guaranteed these things. And and if you just believe, just believe enough. And I have to wonder, didn't Paul believe enough? (laughs) And yet that wasn't God's will. God says, you know, I delight in your weakness And so when it comes, it sometimes after seeking God for his healing, we need to accept the fact that God has something different. This struck me so powerfully when I was watching a testimony by Johnny Erickson Tata some years ago at a Billy Graham crusade. And here she was, this quadriplegic in her wheelchair on the stage before thousands of people. And she told the story of how that after her neck was broken as a 17 year old girl diving into the the water, that she had prayed and people would come by and pray and they told her if she had enough faith, she could be healed. And people said, God's given me visions and prophecies, you're gonna be healed and so forth and so on. And here she was decades later and nothing had changed. And she said, I wanted more than anything else to be healed. I would love to be able to get up out of this chair and walk across this stage and move my arms and do all the things that other people get to do. But she said, I came to a realization Johnny Erickson taught would not be sitting on this stage talking to thousands of people about Jesus Christ if he hadn't broken my neck. And she came to a faith realization. And she came to a ministry that reached out to the disabled because she was disabled. And there are certain ways that God is going to choose to break you and me in our lives because what it does is being broken in certain aspects opens up hearts of compassion that we otherwise would not have. So that when somebody looks at your kids going crazy and you don't know what to do and they look at their kids and they're all seem to be neat and clean like little ducks following their mom down to the lake. And they just simply look at you and say, well I don't understand why you can't get your family together and you realize there's no compassion until one of theirs goes off the rail. And they begin to say, oh, I guess it isn't always easy. You see, that's the reality. It's easy to sit back and say, how could you let your marriage get in such a bad place until you get in that same place and you sit back and go, oh, I guess it isn't really all that easy. And at those moments where we are confronted with the live issues that other people are dealing with, what God opens up in us is a heart of compassion where we care for other people. And even though we may not get complete healing in our life, we actually become healers. Because we come with a word of grace and forgiveness. We come with a word of hope and comfort. Which brings me to the question, why then does James say, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up? Well, you probably heard me say a lot, but context is critical in the interpretation of the text. It's easy to take a passage out of its context and apply it in a way that may seem simple and clear to you, but the context, particularly in this passage, is critically important. In fact, when we begin with the word saying the sick person would be made well, the word translated well in my NIV version is actually the word sozo, which is the common word to save. It means to keep somebody safe and to keep them sound, to rescue from danger, destruction, and peril. But it also essentially means he will be saved or rescued. In fact, J.B. Phillips rendered the passage this way because of what the word was in the original. He says, believing prayer will save the sick man and the Lord will restore him and any sins that he has committed will be forgiven. Now, if you connect that to verse 16 where he says, therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other that you may be healed. And again, the word heal here can be used in one of two ways. It is in the text. It can mean a physical healing, but it also can mean a spiritual healing, to be free from error, to be free from sin, or literally to be saved eternally. You see, it seems to be implying that the infirmity that this person is experiencing is caused by some kind of transgression of sin, not simply by being physically ill. Now, we have to understand that sickness can often be the consequence of sinful behavior. But the prime objective of what James is saying here is the restoration of fellowship, and that becomes very clear when you look at the last two verses that follow after this. In verses 19 and 20, he says, If anyone among you goes astray from the truth and anyone turns him back, know that the one turning a sinner from the error of his ways will save the soul from death and will hide a multitude of sins. You see, it was common believed amongst the Jews of this time that if a person was sick, it was because of sin. And that's why in John chapter 9, when Jesus Uh, is confronted with a man born blind, his disciples ask him to them what was the obvious question. Was this man born blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? Because that was the theological rubric from which they operated. Sickness was always the consequence of sin. And Jesus says something that they don't have a, a niche to handle. He simply says, neither. But he is born blind that God might be glorified that God might be glorified. And the glorification was that God to take a 40-year-old man who had never seen the light of day and suddenly, miraculously, and powerfully and totally be restored to height, uh, he, to sight to be healed of his blindness. So that God is working in ways that sometimes we don't understand. So it may very be likely that what James is saying, if somebody has a sickness and it's because of a consequence of sinful behavior in their life, because one of the things that most of us who have lived long enough know That if you follow sinful behaviors, it begins to develop problems physically. And he says, as a consequence, pray for that person, and if he confesses his sins, he will be healed. In fact, we find that Paul gives us a couple of incidences. That are examples of people who were suffering because of sin. Whether we look at chapter, Acts chapter five with Ananias and Sapphira, who really um, were in pretty bad sin, and God literally struck them dead, which is kind of extreme. It says great fear came amongst people after that. You know, I'm not saying that's going to happen to you, but just I hope you put enough in the offering this morning. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's cheap shot. I... <laughs> I was teasing. Just a little bit. But in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, there's a man who is committing adultery, the worst kind. He's having an incestuous relationship with his his mother mother in law, or excuse me, yeah, or his stepmother, excuse me. And Paul's prescription is deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved. He's literally saying, pray that God would strike him down, physically attack him, that he might be humbled. If he wants to live for Satan, in other words, then deliver him to Satan and see how that works out. Because one of the things that Satan loves is to destroy people psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. But again, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, uh, Talking about the sacrilegious partaking in the Lord's Supper, he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So Paul says, People who would partake of the Lord's Supper in an irreligious and sacrilegious way, disregarding, in other words, it just becomes a mid service snack, he says, Many of you are suffering as a consequence of that disrespect that you've showed to Lord's, towards the Lord and His offering. So the point is: is James only speaking about spiritual healing, or does the same thing apply to physical healing? And I, my answer is simple: yes. I would say both, and you see, man like. The creator who made us in his image is what we call a tripartite being. There, were, there are three of us. As we have God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we call that the trinity, the triune unity of, of the Godhead. So man who is made in God's image has three parts as well. And that's what Paul speaks about in First Thessalonians 5.23 when he writes, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that spirit is that part of us that is born again when we give our life to Christ. He says, I pray that your spirit will be wholly redeemed, that we be born again of that new life in Christ. But secondly, he says, separate from your spirit is a thing called a soul. And the soul we often identify as the mind, the source of our intellect, of our will, of our emotions. It is that motive part of our life. And we find he's saying, I'm praying that God would keep that blameless as well. And finally, we have our body. And our bodies basically are these physical vehicles which God has given us to live and to get a, transport us around in this world. Now many of us realize that our bodies are like an automobile. They have a, a life cycle. They're, they're designed ultimately to fall apart because of sin and because we live in a fallen world. We know that death is the ultimate destiny of all mankind. And the reality is death is the consequence of a thing called decay. Your body ages because your body is decaying. There's a certain moment in your physical life right around 25 years of age where the ability of your body to replace dying cells begins to lose the race and the cells are dying faster than your body can replace them. And that's called aging and that's what death is all about. And so we have these three parts of our being that all oftentimes require healing. And that healing begins, first of all, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I was born again of the Holy Spirit. My spirit became alive. And the best way I can describe that spirit that's in every one of us is that it lies dormant in the same way an egg lies dormant until it's fertilized. It has no, really no energy or life. It just is a capacity that has never been animated within us. So that when Ecclesiastes and Solomon says that God has put eternity in the heart of all men, there is this spiritual dimension within us that understands that there is an eternal dynamic to our existence and that there's something beyond us that we should be seeking to fulfill. And it is the basis of all religious searching that takes place in the world. But until the spirit of Christ comes into me and fertilizes, if you will, that dead spirit, that lifeless spirit, it has no life. So when I asked Christ into my heart, the spirit of God said, I was born again. The new life began to burst inside of us. And many of us can testify to just that kind of experience. The moment I gave my life to Christ, something became alive inside of me that had never been there, much less flourished. So the first beginning of this healing process is I need spiritually to be born again. I need that life. But secondly, there's this process that begins, once the Spirit of God is in me, the Spirit of God begins to lead and direct me to what? The healing of my soul. Every one of us, well, I should say it this way, many of us get confused because they said, I gave my life to Christ. Why do I still struggle with stuff? The reason you struggle with it is because you have a damaged soul. That's what sin does. It damages your soul. That you begin by becoming the victim of other people's bad choices and bad decisions and bad behavior. And then after a while, you begin to make your own bad choices and behave in the bad way. And you actually become a victimizer of other people. And all of that leads to a damaged soul that becomes... Twisted and disoriented and hardened and calloused and suddenly I have the Spirit of God living inside of me and what does God do? Well, through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit working through His Word, God begins to put a spotlight on things in me that most of us would like to pretend don't exist. As Twain said, you know, we're all like the moon. We have a dark side we hope other people won't see. Don't worry, I'm not going to expose you right here. But that's a simple reality. There's there's an aspect of my soul that is constantly coming under the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit. Do you not recognize, if you are truly a follower of Jesus, that there is a a, a sad pettiness about your life? There's a selfishness, there's a competitiveness, there's a resentment, there's a pickiness, there's an irritableness, all sorts of things in little ways that we begin to see in ourselves. And we often think, I mean, I go to the grocery store and and, and I see an opening to get to the front of the line and suddenly some little old lady comes racing in front of me. I didn't know she could move that fast and she probably hasn't until she saw the opportunity to get one ahead. And she zips in front of you and you go, oh, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. You Let's face it, that's kind of a religious way to cuss. (laughs) God bless you. It happens in traffic. It happens in the parking lot. It happens at the airport. It happens all the time when we find ourselves being behind someone else. And we can begin to carry this kind of resentment. And we sit back and go, where does that nastiness come from? Well, oftentimes it comes from a soul that's been damaged by sin. It's the soul that becomes unforgiving and unrepentant. And it clings to certain things. And we ask, why do I cling to these certain kind of behaviors? Well, because we all get misshapen by life circumstances. We grow up in a sinful world. We had sinful parents. And we ourselves are sinners. And so as a result... There's all sorts of things in us that we wish weren't there and we try to keep them hidden but sometimes they just pop up in the surface. And the only solution is to say, God, I need healing. I need to heal this in my heart. This unforgiveness, this resentment, this maliciousness, this bitterness, this hatred, this concept that somehow somebody by doing something to me has robbed me of my best in God. I need to repent of that God and I need to believe in the healing grace of God, that I can love my enemies and I can pray for those who despitefully use me and to care for those who might persecute me. I need God for you to heal me and to set that damaged soul right. And then thirdly, because we live in a fallen world, we'll find that over time, our body will also fall apart. And that's why Paul's response Is In in Romans 12, 1, he says, well, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. In other words, what do you mean by God's mercy? In the view of the fact that God in his mercy has saved your soul by giving you spiritual rebirth. And the evidence of that is how God begins to move upon your soul. He says to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I would put it this way because I think it's understood that both my mind and my body are offered to God as living sacrifices. That he says no longer conforming to the pattern of this world because that's what my soul did before I was saved. I simply conformed to the pattern or the way things work in this world but instead to be transformed wow, by the renewing of your mind. Literally the word could be translated the renewing of your soul. That God wants to bring soul renewal into your life. Then he says you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. In other words, as God begins to heal the soul damage that I have encountered in life, I begin to reveal what really is the heart and the way and the will of God in the living of my life. You see, what I'm suggesting to you is that the formula for physical healing that James gives to us here is also the formula for emotional healing as well, if in fact we have been born again of the Spirit of God. And let me emphasize this again. If you have not been born again, if the Spirit of God has not come and animated your lifeless spirit, then none of this will work for you. It's only as the Spirit indwells us that the soul can begin to come under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and begin to grow and to change and mature and become different. And that's why what James says, three things. First of all, he says it begins with prayer. He says, call the elders to pray. When we talk about praying about something in this context, it involves two things on your part. The first one is admission. I have to humbly and honestly admit that I have a need. God, I'm, I struggle with jealousy. God, I know that that's not of you. God, I confess that I am a jealous person. Heal me, or I'm an envious person, or I'm a hateful person, or an angry man, or any of those things. I confess to you, God, that that is sin. And in so confessing, also secondarily inviting God to address that issue in your life in a way that brings about healing in your soul. And it's interesting because he says, I think he's really saying to us, that when it's something that really is mountainous in your life, it's something that you really struggle to overcome and you, you become like, as Peter said, the dog who keeps on returning to his vomit or the sow who keeps on rolling in the mud after he's been washed. And there's many of you Not, let me say many of you, all of us understand that dynamic. We talk about, the writer of Hebrews talks in chapter 12 in the Old King James about the besetting sins. There are certain behaviors and thoughts and actions that seem to just come back over and over and over again. And what he says is, not only do you need to pray for them, but to go to the spiritual leaders of the church and say, would you pray that God would break this thing in my life? You see, that's where many of us get Stuck. We're so ashamed of what we do that is shameful that we don't want to let anybody else know. And oftentimes, and I don't say this for every issue or every thought that you had in your mind, but I'm simply saying that when you have a major issue in your life, you're willing to come and say, would you pray that God would deliver me from this thing that keeps on taking me captive? And the reason why I emphasize not everything that comes in your mind was when I was first saved, uh, the fellowship I was in, we got into you know, uh, the oldest person in our group was six months in Christ, so we were really, really a group of we, we really collected our ignorance together and used it many times to our own harm. And we got this idea we should always confess every sin. And it was like it got tormenting because you'd be sitting there doing something and somebody turned to you and saying, uh, I have to ask your forgiveness because I just hated you. And after a while, you just kind of got <laughs> it, it wasn't fun. We kind of realized maybe that's not what God means because this is driving people crazy. But when Paul says, offering your mind and bodies as living sacrifices, I would say to you that unless you're willing to really offer up that thing that holds you captive to the point of saying, would you please... Pray for me. You're probably not going to get free from it. You're probably not going to keep... Because you see, like like a lot of dark things, they thrive in the musty darkness of secrecy. Secrets destroy people. Living in secret. And somehow when we confess things and we ask for prayer, that God has a power to move and to liberate in our lives that we never thought possible. The second thing he says is to anoint him with oil. Uh, The word anoint here that James uses is not the same word creole, which was for ceremonial oil. In other words, when people were anointed as a king or a priest or something of that nature, uh, even when the women came and broke the alabaster box and and poured the perfume on Jesus, uh, and he said it was in preparation for his death because that's what this perfume was used for is preparing bodies for the grave. It's not that kind of anointing, but literally, literally this is more of a pedestrian word. It, it, the word literally refers to the application of, of salves and lotions and perfumes. It was a word that was used for the physical trainers who would work on the muscles of the athletes and the gladiators, but it was also the word that physicians used because much of the medical treatment in the ancient world was the application of of various fragrant oils and perfumes as a means of, of healing whatever was ailing a person. In fact, Jay Adams uh, uh, notes in his book, Competent to Counsel, he says, the use of oil was the best medical means of the day. It is the treating of sickness by medical means accompanied by prayer. In other words, he's telling us if the body is sick, we should first seek to have prayer, and then secondly, go to the doctor. If the doctor tells you that you need to take a medication or you need some kind of surgical procedure, I would say pray again <laughs> because doctors don't know everything. And sometimes God wants you to pray, but the point is there's nothing wrong with going to the physician and getting physical help, because even Paul says that to Timothy, who was probably struggling with an ulcerative condition where he said, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, because wine has an ability to kill some of the bacteria that cause uh, those kind of ulcerative conditions, so there certainly was nothing in the mind. Keep in mind that Paul's constant companion was a man by the name of Luke, the physician, so Paul was not speaking against medical treatment. The fact is their medical capacities were very limited. But the simple fact was he says, don't be afraid to get medical help, but begin with prayer. That if you have something, and I'm not talking about if you have a sniffles or hay fever, you know, that's not in my, my menu of miracles. But, you know, you, can, you know, it's not that every single thing that you have, an ache and pain, that you should go and seek prayer. But at the same time, when you are struggling or you're being debilitated by something, it says the first thing you should do is come and ask the elders, not the guy on TBN, but you come and find the elders and say, would you pray over me and heal me, that God would deliver me from this thing? And then go seek whatever medical treatments that you can uh, afford and are able to, to access but I see I also believe this applies to emotional and if I can use the word psychological issues as well, that sometimes people have toxic thoughts and they need people who are skilled in understanding how to treat those things. I do believe that people need counseling, well, more so and more than counseling. people need many times a therapist because often a counselor is somebody who can tell you they tell you what's wrong, uh, but a therapist is, can help create a pathway to get free from it and I do believe that ultimately it's God who heals but God uses people who are skilled in certain areas to speak into our lives to give us insight into why we do some certain things or why we're addicted to certain behaviors and there's nothing wrong in my opinion in seeking help because I think it's really what he's talking about when he says anoint with oil, he's saying go seek help from the appropriate sources and then finally he says Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Two things I think are critical here. Unconfessed sin is acid to your soul. Unconfessed sin is toxic. And that's just the simple fact. It eats away at the inside of you. So that living secrets and hiding things inside of you will just eat away at your soul in a way that will become crippling and debilitating. More healing, I believe, takes place through the simple confession of sin than anything else we ever do. It first and foremost heals our relationship with God. And secondly, it heals our relationship with others. But that also implies that it happens within a context. The confessing your sins to others means that you're confessing within community, you're living a confessional life within the church. And that requires something, that if the church is going to be a place of healing, it has to be a place where it's healthy or safe to be sick. To be sick spiritually, to be sick emotionally, to be sick physically, is it safe to be that? It's ironic how sometimes we do things and don't realize the monster we've created. That when we say to people, if you're born again, then you stop sinning. Then suddenly you make it out of bounds and unsafe to be able to say, hey, I'm struggling with sin. One person turned around saying, you know, there's one whole theology that says if you're truly saved, you know it because you no longer sin. Wow. When somebody says that to me, I'd say, can I talk to your wife or your husband? I want to find out if you sin anymore. But we can also do that emotionally, which is simply saying, well, if you're saved, then you no longer struggle with that issue or this issue. That shouldn't be an issue that you have to battle in your life. You should be an overcomer. And and, and John says, if you walk, say you're walking in light and you walk in darkness, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. And suddenly it becomes unsafe to say to somebody, this is what I battle with. And the reality is everyone in this room is battling something. I mean, I, I battle with unbelief all the time. Especially over things that matter. I have loved ones that I pray for every day. My wife and I pray for every day. And I'm praying in faith that they will come to know Jesus. And yet some of them are so far from Christ. In my mind I'm going, I don't see how this is going to ever work. That's unbelief. But I'm still praying. I'm like the man saying to Jesus, Lord help my unbelief. (laughs) I want to believe you but Lord I've been praying for this person for years. And they're still not getting saved. There's all sorts of things that we struggle with. But you see, there's something freeing to be able to honestly say that to somebody. I struggle with this. I battle with this. You know, one of the reasons I think that there's a whole crisis within the church over homosexuality and same-sex marriage is because it's not been safe for people with those struggles to stand up and say, I struggle with this and I need help. But instead, we're going... (laughs) Get out of here. We don't want to see you. We don't want your kind around here. And we drive them up. The church becomes unsafe. To be a healing church, we have to be a place where it's safe to really honestly say, this is what I battle with. To be a healing place, it's a place where we can come that we're not looked down upon because of even a physical disformity or we're looked down upon because of mental incapacity. I think one of the greatest compliments you can be paid as a pastor is to have somebody say, boy, you got an odd bunch of people there. (laughs) Because what does it mean? It means you're safe for oddballs. I've got this problem. I like quirky people. You know, and I like my jeans this morning, they've got holes in them. That was because I was in so many hours of prayer this morning. I just wanted to point out the elephant in the room. (laughs) But the question we have to ask ourselves as a family of believers, are we that kind of safe place? Are we that kind of safe place where somebody can actually sit down and say, look, this has been a lifelong battle for me. I've struggled with this. This has been a besetting sin in my life that I've repented of it a thousand times and I find myself coming back to it. Many times healing doesn't come until we let that that demon out of the box and we suddenly realize he's got no power. But Satan wants us to keep hidden and secret and hiding because he doesn't want us to be healed. He doesn't want us as believers to be fully functional in the things of the Spirit of God. He wants us to be crippled by our fear that we're going to be found out that we're not what we're supposed to be or we pretend that we are. We're trying to. We're operating under the theology. I'll fake it until I make it, and then understand. I get frustrated because after years we're still not making it, and the same thing that once held us up keeps on pulling us back in again and again and again. And I believe that when that happens, God intends to let, to, for us to be healed within the church, and that the church needs to commit to being a safe enough place where people with serious soul damage can be open and share that damage and ask for healing. Father, I pray that you would help us to be that kind of a church, that kind of community of believers, Lord, that kind of family. That, Lord, we would be freed from the pretending and the pretense that we're some way, how people who have overcome everything and we don't struggle anymore when in fact Lord you've made it very clear to us that we all struggle with a lot of stuff we, we're sinners, saved sinners but we're still sinners who are living in a sinful world, we are raised by sinful parents we married a sinner, we have sinful kids we, have, we live in a, in a wicked time and our, our lives are pummeled with all sorts of issues. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not be afraid that when something takes us captive, that we would have the courage to say, I need prayer. I need deliverance. I need to confess my sin. I need for people to pray for me that I might be liberated from this bondage. Lord, I just ask that you do that deeper work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh,